have going today. I'm excited <laughs> to see. We have so I never much. quite know where we're going to go with I this know. whole thing. Uh, <laughs> first, I want to say welcome to all the new listeners. And thank you for yes. hanging in for the people that are doing this series. I know it's long. Yes. And please mm-hmm. know, the reason I'm going into every detail of this and it's like so intense, this does not usually happen. This is not no. how court usually is. Please do not think that this happens in every trial. <laughs> this does not. I also want to give a shout out to a new friend and listener, Angela, in Georgia. She actually, her daughter's making a t-shirt for us, which is really, really cute. Oh, and I love the one. Yeah, uh-huh. I was going to do a, a t-shirt that had like a PI tip of the day and had one or two of them. She did one. She put the PI tip. Don't go around hitting people in the head with bats. <laughs> and if you don't get that reference, you can go back and listen to the episode, A Football Player and a Bat. It's kind of funny. Crazy, but funny. And then she yeah, had, with a bat. And then, then she, her daughter created another <laughs> shirt just for you, Shelly, because it says... I know! I'm so shit excited! Damn hell, shit damn hell. I want that one. <laughs> Tell her I'll buy that right now. You, you fact, need I'm, that I'll one. market it here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And we're getting lots of feedback. I'm hearing from people that they love it. And it is, I love it. It really does mean a lot to hear that, that you're listening and you get it and you care. And because for me, it was actually hell to go through this. It was an adventure yes. and it was yeah. really hard. I felt so, how could, so muted. It's like to even try to explain it, it's so long. Look how many hours we've had doing this. So, right. Right. So it's not like mm-hmm. you can just meet someone and go, oh, you know, we got screwed on that deal. And they would even begin to understand. No. And they just think, oh, sure, you have been screwed. Yeah, like just because you lost or yeah. whatever. Yeah, exactly. I also think this gives a whole different perspective to the system. And I'm thankful that I live in America and I'm thankful for a system that we have. Yeah. But you can see that there are things that need to be tweaked and, of course, improved. Yes. You know, but, but wow, this has... Every time something happens, I'm like, is this like normal? And you're like, no. <laughs> no. no it is. But that that should only have happened once or twice, not like every time we get together. Right. right. <laughs> and two or three times you are... during the session. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> during so, the recording, I'm like, okay, halt. Wait, what just happened here? So <laughs> in our last episode, we were going into the Lacey and the F-bomb, the, the mm-hmm. craziest day I've ever had in court. We did that. But I actually need to fill everyone in on some things. Okay. The very first day of trial, like Marcus, I remember I'm working for Marcus. I can't tell you how much right. I love the guy. So yeah. amazing. And Marcus. Will we ever, will we hear him on this podcast? I wish. Marcus passed oh. away a couple of years ago. Oh, very, very early. Wow. I'm sorry. Very early I'm in sorry. his 40s of a heart attack. Oh, wow. I'm sorry to hear that. Okay. I think you've said that before. Yeah. And yeah, I forgot. I I could do many episodes on Marcus because he's the winningest attorney I've ever worked with. The winningest. Really? He won more than. I probably has the most wins in not just in cases but in high-profile cases in the West Coast. He graduated from law school from BYU here in Utah. Then he went to New York, worked for a big law firm in New York. Okay. And then went to L.A. and worked for a big law firm in L.A. and was cutting his teeth with one of the biggest litigators in the country and learned a lot of great things. And one of the things that he learned from that guy was that when you start a trial with someone, when you're going, the very first day you approach the lead prosecutor and you 
say, hey, look, I mean, we're at war, we're in conflict every day, we're, we're sure. really at battle uh-huh. with each we're other. We're battling, sure. And so we can stay, like, cordial with one another. Let's exchange sure. phone numbers so that at the end of every day, we can have a phone conversation, and between you and I, we will work out our differences. Oh, cool. Which is very, very cool. And the first day right. of trial... Hey, wait, has he always been a defense attorney? Yes. Okay. And the very first day of our trial, he mm-hmm. approached the lead prosecutor, Rob London, and started saying, telling him, like, hey, let's exchange phone numbers. We're going to have a lot of issues. This is going to be a long trial. And so mm-hmm. that we can keep things cordial and, and at least between you and I have work out our differences, <laughs> we can resolve things at the end of each day. And while he was sure. doing that, Jason Burt, one of the prosecutors that I really dislike, okay. Jason Burt came up and interrupted and said, what are you doing? And Marcus explained, like, I just want to exchange numbers with the lead prosecutor, with Rob, so that we can keep things cordial throughout this process. And Jason grabbed Rob Lennon by the arm and said, no, we're not doing that. What? And walked away. Why? I wonder. Well, isn't Rob, isn't he his own man? Like, can't he say, wait, Apparently not. Apparently not. Rob was oh. actually the head of the crime division, the white collar crime. Okay. I was very surprised to learn of this. And that actually, in my opinion, that action, that behavior really will tell you a lot about, and, and Tom mentioned it in the last episode, and I'm going to bring him back in for another episode before we're done with this, because okay. it's... It will really help to have another opinion talking about how, like, there was, it created so much tension between our two sides. We already had tension, but for them to... Exactly. And, like, from the, right out of the chute, right out of the gate, like, we do not want to be cordial with you. We are not going to exchange phone numbers. We don't want to, we don't, basically, we don't give a crap, is what it felt like. Yeah, like, kiss off. Yes, as they go through, their first witnesses were, like, the Visa guy, bank guy, Wells Fargo, the number two people from Wells Fargo, people from right. First Data. Mm-hmm. They're flying these mm-hmm. people in from, like, I don't know if people are aware of this, but San Francisco, downtown San Francisco is, like, financial headquarters between downtown San Francisco and Wall Street in New York. That controls, like, our financial world in, yes. in America. Mm-hmm. And so yes. all these bankers are coming from San Francisco to fly in here to testify okay. and the visa people and first data. And as we're doing this, one of the issues that Marcus was trying to get a- across was they were leading these witnesses to say that, that they couldn't figure out who owned all these companies. But here's, you know, remember we had oh, all, that's right. they yeah. had all the mm-hmm. different shell companies. They called them shell companies. And I told you Wells right. Fargo had over 3,000, I think, and First Data right. has uh-huh. over 4,000. When they say they didn't know who who it was, on every single one of those applications, there was one little part that said, who is the personal guarantor of this company? Because mm-hmm. they're not going to just give a merchant account to someone that doesn't have money. No, you just can't random. Just, yeah. You can't just go get yeah. a merchant account. They're hard to get. That's why it was a big deal that Jeremy was helping Lacey, in his opinion. So as part of that, Marcus was getting it on the record that, wait a minute, you say you had a hard time finding out where these all went to. Did you look here? Literally on every application, it said there was a part on the app, merchant app, that said personal guarantor, and it always said Jeremy Johnson. Always. That was never hidden. So 
In my opinion, it wouldn't be that hard to figure out. Well, if you can read, (laughs) it shouldn't have been hard. That's right. (laughs) Right. Now, remember, attorney number four is standby counsel. He's supposed to be... Yes, he's overflossing. Yes, Mm -hmm. he's overflossing and sending emails Mm -hmm. all day long. And I love that. And I'll bet he had the cleanest teeth ever. Yes. And <laughs> I told you we had taken over like this big break room mm-hmm. that they yeah. called it like an attorney lounge. Right. The U.S. attorneys, the federal prosecutors have their offices there in the federal courthouse. We don't have offices there. So we just kind of all lived. It was kind of our home. Find someplace. It became to, uh-huh. our home. It yeah. had a big fridge there. It had a couch and some chairs. And okay. I know this sounds really odd, but through the tension and the stress of the courtroom and it's such a cold environment, not like, not as cold yeah. as prison, but it's certainly not warm to, to have a break room where there was actually like a couch and a couple chairs and a table. It just felt like home to us. And so okay. we used that room the first week of trial. One of, actually, Scott Levitt's wife, Sandy, was bringing lunch for all of us every day. And I thought that was just super nice. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so nice of you to feed all of us. It was a lot of people. Right. And then she informed me that one of Marcus's assistants had told her that she had to. (laughs) I was like, like, wait a minute. No, that's not right. That is just not right to do that. So So I said, let's do this. Because it really was an awesome time. You only get 30 minutes for lunch. And that we okay. could go in and, and have lunch, all of us together, and use that 30 minutes to talk. Exactly. Rather than, than of course, that does make sense. Yeah. So it was yeah. extremely helpful. So I said, hey, look, let's do this. So let's have, like, all the women take turns bringing lunch in for everyone. Okay. So kind of like they say about Ginger Rogers with Fred Astaire, that she did everything he did, only backwards and in high heels. <laughs> We women did everything that we had to do for our piece of the trial. And we had the responsibility of food for everyone. And I know this probably seems mundane, like, why am I telling you this? Because this break room actually ended up almost being like another character in all of this. Because it was a big part of where we met, where we learned a lot of information. I'm going to be referring to it a lot through the trial. And it was super nice. And what we noticed was attorney number four started coming in. Never missed lunch. He started coming in and having lunch with us. I love that. That's so thoughtful. Oh, yeah. And it it bugged the crap out of me. whatever (laughs) and then after lunch then because i thought he was just taking advantage of the food and the lunch sure because we actually made Uh some really good lunches it was awesome yeah and we would get in there and we'd laugh that's what was amazing about these people this is like the biggest trial of their lives they're literally fighting for their life their freedom and Mm -hmm. they still could laugh and be fun and they were always kind never ever ever did I see someone on the team that was so stressful that they would snap at another person? Never. Wow, that's amazing. It, uh-huh. it is amazing, because I worked with Jack for a long time, and that did not <laughs> that didn't happen with Jack. I was not used no. to that. <laughs> and I really, really appreciated it. So, one day we're in there, we're all talking, and Ryan Riddle, who is the co-defendant that's also pro se representing himself oh yes yes remember uh-huh. i thought he was crazy for going pro se right and as we're talking he says well yeah i mean yeah something about like my lawyer i had to just go pro se at the last minute and i was like yeah that was kind of crazy ryan what were you thinking and he yeah. said are you kidding you don't know i didn't choose to do this what oh 
Yeah, that's weird because you said you wondered about that. Yeah, and I said, well, I thought you did it just because you saw Jeremy doing it and you thought it seemed like a good idea. And he said, no, no. Three weeks before trial, my public defender called me one night and he was crying and he said, I'm in tears. I'm in the fetal position on the floor. I, what, I what can't do this. What is with all these attorneys that cry? <laughs> right. He, he, he <laughs> Sorry, said, but I mean, you know what I mean? It seems like every time you turn around, one of them's crying. I, yeah. It, he said, I cannot do this. I am under wow. so much pressure. I can't do it. I can't. Wow. Wow. You need to get another attorney. And wow. Ryan said, are you kidding me? It's three weeks like before trial. This has been going yeah, on go- for yeah. like five years. They are not going to let me get a new attorney three weeks before trial. Jeremy just asked for one. They're not going to let that happen. What do you want wow. me to do? Represent myself? And the attorney said, yeah, that would be a good idea. And that is how Ryan ended up Ryan. representing himself. Wow. That is like so beyond crazy. I can't even yeah, tell you. Not... I, yeah. I had no idea. And I kept, like, if it were me, if I were in Ryan's spot, I would probably be shouting that from the mountaintops. Like, hey, I didn't choose to be in this spot. Exactly. But he didn't. Yeah. He didn't. Wow. Uh, he just, like, took it like a man. These, these men, I'm telling you, their characters are amazing to me. Completely amazing to me. Okay, so now, as we get into trial, as you remember, one of the motions in Lemony said that there was no money lost. Remember that? Yeah. That we Mm -hmm. were not allowed to say that there was no money lost. Right. And so, of course, we want that. We would have liked to have had that opportunity to explain. Hey, you're talking about a bank fraud case, conspiracy to commit bank fraud, money laundering, all these things. And there's no money lost. Like, you should know this. But we weren't allowed to say it. So as trial starts, here's what I think happened with the prosecutors. I think their strategy was... I think it took them like a minute to figure it out. I think they decided they would object a lot. But after like the first day, I am not kidding you. I've never seen this happen. They almost were objecting to every single question that came out of the mouths of these guys. Now, remember, you have... Because they don't have an attorney. They don't have an attorney. This is new. Right. And Ryan has a high school education. He's representing himself against four of the top U.S. attorneys in the state. This is crazy. Jeremy has a yeah. high school education, and Jeremy joked that he barely graduated high school. Both these guys, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. both these guys are representing themselves in the biggest case, and these prosecutors decide, "Hey, I know what. Let's just object to every like to totally knock them yeah. off balance." Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. They didn't just do it to them. They also did it to Marcus. So Marcus was really, and Marcus's brother, Brad, they were both, like, they were co-counsel for Scott Levitt. Okay, all right. But it was mostly Marcus. Brad takes a couple of of witnesses that he does cross or direct on, but he he Mm -hmm. takes a few of them, but mostly it's on Marcus's shoulders, which makes sense because this is Marcus's thing, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, So... In regards to the, the court order about this, so we we get into questioning and we're talking, there is one of the bank executives, and I'm not going to bore everyone with all the testimony, okay. I have just picked out some key parts of the transcript from trial to give okay. you an example of how all this comes down. So okay. it comes out in regards to no money lost. 
the government's been objecting like crazy to almost every question Marcus is asking. And so Marcus says, Your Honor, I'm trying to argue. Please don't sustain that objection. I'm trying to get to the good faith element of our defense. And the judge asks, What good faith element? Mumford. The good faith defense that we have, Your Honor, that negates the intent requirement because if you had intent to defraud, then we would not have. Then we would not have given them the money and the authorization to hold back money to cover any fines or risk of loss or anything like that. Okay. Okay. Remember, I told you there was three million dollars in reserve. Right. Yes. Right. So I know. Like this seems kind of we're kind of in some tall grass again, but I promise you, this is all like such fascinating stuff. The judge responds. This is the part. Wait. This is the part when Jeremy was like. He kind of got frustrated. He said, I can't even defend myself. And it was with the bank guy, right? Yes. Yes. And it was at Wells Fargo. And they were like, we're not pushing this because no money bounced. Like there was money to cover it, but the, but no one would let that come into court. Right? Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, and we can't okay. say, we can't have a witness testify that no money was lost. But Marcus, right. but we kind of figured out a loophole. When I say we, I mean Marcus and Jeremy, I think. Okay. And Ryan, I think the okay. both, all those guys do not let Ryan's and Jeremy's lack of education fool you. Those guys are really sharp. Oh, they're smart. Yeah, they're smart very smart. Quick. Yeah. So yeah. they realized, hey, if the government witness brings it in, then let's run with it. And the government witness had just testified about these reserve accounts. Well, there was three million dollars in reserves, and so all the the fees. Remember, I told you there was like over a million dollars in fees. Right. Those fees and, were paid and out of that. And nobody could say anything. Oh, yeah. All those fees were okay. paid out of that reserve account. So the judge... Okay. So now jump back and explain it again, now that we have a, a little bit more background about what Marcus did then. Again, okay. Say it again. So Marcus, so Marcus is saying, he's trying to explain to the judge why I need this to go down this line of questioning. Because okay. the bank guy had just testified about these fees. And Marcus right. was saying... But there was a reserve account, right? And of course, the government is objecting. Freaking it's out. It's a fact. Sure. And it's in evidence. Right. Their own witness brought it in. We didn't. Yeah. And so they object because they don't want that line of questioning. So Marcus says, Your Honor, that negates the intent requirement. Because one of the requirements on with the criminal charges, not only do they have to prove that you did it, number one. Number two, they have to prove that you had the intent to defraud. So there are okay. two elements to it. Okay. And Marcus says that negates the intent requirement because if we had the intent to defraud, then we would not have given them the money and the authorization to hold back money to cover any fines or risk or loss of any of any loss or anything like that. Remember, mm-hmm. Jeremy, when our last episode, Jeremy asks one of the bankers, hey, have you ever had anyone ask to keep an account open just to pay those fees as long as they're coming in? And they, they answered no, and the government objected because they didn't want that information coming in. Clarify one thing for me. When it's objected, like I can object, but unless the judge rules in my favor, right. it's still on the transcript. It's on the transcript. See, so yeah, yeah, I'm reading all these. Okay. So Perfect. Okay. So the jury is hearing it. The jury's hearing They're it. They're hearing. Yes. Okay. And the judge is sustaining almost every objection that the prosecutors are doing. Oh, my hell. I'm not kidding. That's a shit damn hell moment. Oh. Shit damn hell, shit damn hell, oh, shit damn hell. Shelly, you would have not had anything else to say for like six weeks. 
And I just had to play the recording. I, I wouldn't have had a voice left. I have never in my life heard so many objections. Ever. That's so crazy. It literally. Like, so crazy. They counted them up when we were done, when we had the transcript. And it averaged uh -huh. out, for the amount of time we were in court, it averaged out to about one objection every minute and a half in court. Wow. For six weeks. Like, we couldn't get out of the chute. And I want to give you guys some examples of how it went. Like, this is insane. So Marcus is explaining, hey, I'm asking about this because I basically I want to show. How can you have intent to defraud if you have money in the account is basically what And you haven't defrauded said. anyone. Right. If you, How can you have intent to defraud when you didn't defraud? <laughs> right, right, right. I so, mean, I don't know. That seems pretty basic. It does. So the judge <laughs> says, my ruling is that the reserve accounts and handling of the reserve accounts other than where they reside is not relevant. I just want to show. I'm just going to grab just a little piece of it. And I'm okay. really not kidding. I could go on for not just hours, I could go on for days giving you examples of this, but I just want people to know. And, and as you listen to this, I honestly want you to think, if you're in Marcus's shoes or Jeremy's shoes or Ryan's, and every time you ask a question, they object, and you've got to find another way to, or, or go to your next question, but you're trying to figure out right. how do I get this evidence in, I just want to show you right. like how it felt. The frustration level. Yeah. In this situation, there was like an application that was shown to the witness. I'm just going to jump into where they were right there because I don't want to bore everyone. Marcus says like, are you talking about what's on the screen? And the, the judge says, are you talking about the phone number that's on the screen? And Mr. Mumford, Marcus says, yes. The court sustained their objection. I'm just showing you this just to show the rhythm of things. And then Marcus says to the witness, isn't it true that that's not a number that's actually Wells Fargo Bank? That's a number to Wells Fargo Merchant Services. Jason Burt, the prosecutor, objection, assumes facts not in evidence. Argumentative, irrelevant. So he's making three objections. He's saying on three levels, I'm objecting that it's assuming facts that aren't in evidence. It's argumentative, it's irrelevant. The judge, sustained. I mean, it just goes, I can't even, I'm trying to give you an example, but it's so, there's so much. So then we go on the rulings from the judge. So you need to understand, so Jeremy, they were trying to say that what Jeremy, the way he practiced business, it wouldn't be allowed, that it was illegal, that Wells Fargo wouldn't have allowed this, right. and blah, blah, blah. And that Jeremy is okay. like blacklisted, that's why he had to do these other people and all this. So okay. a couple months before trial, a few months before trial, maybe six months, Jeremy actually went on, I, unbeknownst to me or Marcus or anyone at the time, he went on Wells Fargo's merchant account services site and he applied for a merchant account a new one this is while he's facing 86 felonies for bank wait fraud, minute, wait wire fraud. And, not, and nobody nobody knows he did this no one knew it but you gotta love him man he's like oh let me show you how easy this is to do well okay he, what he was showing is how he was trying to learn how do they practice business now do they change anything sure and this story this is going to become extremely relevant so he says when he's applying he he calls their 800 number he talks to this woman and he says okay i have this company i'm being told that we have some affiliate fraud remember we're not allowed to say that in court so jeremy right. says i'm being told that there's some fraud coming into my merchant account and i need to split it up so i need to do another merchant account and i'm trying to fill this application out and as 
it says on there, how many employees do I have? And he said, and he tells the woman, I actually have a thousand employees, but they're trying to have me split this up. So I don't know how many employees to put on there. And the woman says, it doesn't matter. We don't even look at that. And he said, well, yeah, but I think I need to fill it in. I don't know what to put. So she says, let me do it for you. For you. And I will email it to you. So she fills it out. I think she put 150 employees, just picked a number. Okay. And she filled it out and emailed it to Jeremy. So now we have the Wells Fargo guy on the stand saying we would never allow this. This is not how Wells Fargo (laughs) does business. So so then Jeremy's like, I'd like to object. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Jeremy hands this application to... Marcus and Wells Fargo has their employee on the stand, so you can imagine they also have their lawyer in the audience. And he <laughs> he doesn't like it because it's going to make him look bad. Oh, again, gonna get caught. please can I remind everyone how much I love the movie Liar Liar, where the lawyer yeah. can't lie anymore, and he and uh-huh, that, that uh-huh. scene where he's, and he's trying to object, and they're like, "What?" and he can't lie, so he says, "They're like, why do you? What's your objection?" And he finally like, "Cause it's." damaging to my case it's like so so just like that situation here we are again so marcus has this paper and now here's what happens in terms of this the judge says i've been handed an unmarked document that you intend to use with this witness mr mumford tell me what it is Mr. Mumford, it's my understanding that it is the, the approval papers and the application that Mr. Johnson received the honor about February 5th when he applied for a merchant account with Wells Fargo Merchant Services or Wells Fargo Bank through Wells Fargo Merchant Services. They're two different entities. And, he, and okay. Marcus says, and he received an approval on that application. Okay. Jeremy is facing 86 I can't even imagine. And the Wells Fargo Bank <laughs> approved him. For a merchant account, which makes the government's case look really, really bad, Your Honor. <laughs> I can't even imagine the objections. I bet the prosecutors melted right there, like their faces melted off. Oh, I, oh, I, and what about? Oh, and what about the Wells Fargo guy? Exactly, like exactly. Oh, and I was wrong. That's beyond a shit damn hell moment. <laughs> no, like, and it, I was wrong. It was not six months before. It was a week before trial. To make it even more intense. Oh my intense. God. So now, Mr. Burt, this is Jason Burt, the prosecutor, the, one of the two that I, I actually I had a struggle with all the prosecutors. And Jason Burt says, Your Honor, it appears that Mr. Johnson applied for this last week in an attempt to set this witness up for cross examination. And for that purpose alone, Mr. Yitzaki. which is the Wells Fargo guy, if allowed to testify about this, will actually testify that they discovered the application and then denied it. But this was done deliberately by Mr. Johnson, and we assume the entire defense team in order to set up for this witness. And we consider this witness tampering. Judge, Kate, now, witness tampering, that's a felony. Serious Wait stuff. Wait a minute. Okay. Serious stuff. Serious stuff. And now that he's not only saying that Jeremy's witness tampering, but now he's throwing all of us in there with him. He said it's inappropriate in every conceivable way. It should not be used. And frankly, Mr. Johnson should be instructed not to pull these types of shenanigans again. And I think it may be proper to have Wells Fargo attorneys weigh in on this. 
then the court says, let me hear from you. And the Wells Fargo attorney says, well, this account has been closed because of this association. <laughs> really? Do you think? Like once? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then the judge turns to Mr. Mumford and Marcus says, I think, Your Honor, I think when Mr. Johnson takes the stand to testify, I think he'll testify that they told him he was approved and he was. And the judge says, and how is this relevant to the issues in this case? Mr. Mumford. How can the judge not say this? <laughs> exactly. I'm not even an attorney and I can follow this story. Thank you. So Marcus says, Gosh. it's relevant to the issues in this case because it's what they had this witness testify on direct examination that Wells Fargo would never set up an approved merchant account for an individual or entity on the match list. That's what they call the blacklist that I was telling you about for excessive okay. chargebacks. And the judge asks again, and how is that relevant to the issues in this case? Oh my Mr. gosh! Mumford. Well, your honor, it's what they had this witness testify to in direct examination. The judge, you don't understand relevance. Relevance does not relate to a witness's testimony. It relates to the issues in the case. Now, how is this relevant to the issues in the case, Mr. Mumford? Their whole theory, Your Honor, is that the alleged fraud and the conspiracy was undertaken because these individuals and iWorks and Mr. Johnson could not get a merchant account from Wells Fargo. And the judge rules, the document, I want to mark it. It won't be used, but it will be in the record that you have your record for appeal. What? What? So what that means is, and I've never heard a judge do this before. I've never heard this stuff happen before. I just never have. So <laughs> the judge. I wonder if this is talked about in law school. It, like, it let's go be. over to Utah. Yeah. Let me show you the do's and don'ts. Yes. And get ready. Okay. So the judge is saying, and he's putting it on the record, like, hey, basically, I'm planning that you guys are going to lose. And, I'm and saying you're no. Gonna want, I'm saying no, and I don't care what you think. And that's yeah. okay. The judge yeah. can do that. That is their right. That's why they're the judge. Even if they're wrong, they're the judge in their decision. Right. Rules. Okay. And the judge did this a number of times in the trial. And it distressed me every single time because to me, it was prejudicing the jury to think that, well, if the judge thinks they're going to be convicted and they are going to be appealing this, he's probably trying to tell us something that he these guys are really bad what he's saying there so, is if and off. when you lose and your client yeah. goes to prison when it goes to appeal you can bring this up that i made a mistake on this issue but, <laughs> wow yeah so after that issue came up where jeremy did the application and they actually gave him a new merchant account which is crazy. Not the way that we would tell him to prove this, but it certainly did prove that they actually still do practice this way and they would have given him another merchant account. It certainly did prove that they were incorrect about what they were saying. We had a recess in the courtroom and Jeremy came out and I was standing next to Sharla, his wife, and we were talking to Jeremy and Jeremy said, like, I didn't tell you because I knew you'd get mad at me. And I was like, yeah, I would have. Uh, this is not the way I'd say to do it. And as we're talking, Jason Burke came by, one of the prosecutors, and he said something to Jeremy. I don't remember the exact words that he said, but the gist of it was this. Oh, you think you're so smart? You think you're going to outwit us and outsmart us and do this to us? You'll see. We're going to get you. 
and it was so snotty and wow. so scary and i'd never heard a prosecutor do this ever they are not allowed to talk to the defendant i was like whoa hey and actually rich the attorney that we've had on before was standing next to me so rich confronted jason burt and rich said hey i think you need to step away so when we went back in court jeremy put it on the record and said your honor i just wanted to put it on the record that mr burt approached me and my wife and and pamela the investigator heard this and i just needed it on the record i mean i'm just telling you this because it was so contentious between the two sides I have never seen prosecutors dislike a defendant so much. This was the craziest stuff I'd ever seen. So then, when we talk about the motions in limine, those are the motions. There were actually over 50 of them filed. Rich Casper explained that to us before. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the three that I found were the most distressing one, the, the part that we can't say that no money was lost. And so when they start talking about this, we're trying to get that information in. And here's what's happened. The government, their witnesses brought in this information, like to talk about affiliate fraud. Okay. But then when we go to cross-examine them about it, they objected. Their guy opened the door. Remember, we couldn't mention affiliate fraud. So their guy, the government witness mentioned affiliate fraud. And we're like, awesome. Typically in court, if the prosecution goes down a road, they open a door. Uh Then the defense, you get to go in that same door. They open the door, so you get to go in that door. That's how it works. Okay. And so in this case, when Marcus would start to go in that door, they would object. And not just, I told you, like, the amount of objections, it was absolutely insane. Yeah. And so Marcus was saying, like, Your Honor, I'm trying to figure out, like, they opened the door, but then they're not allowing us in. And Mr. Burt, the prosecutor, stands up, and he says, Your Honor... One other issue. They're talking about these motions in limine, and and he says, I don't know if it's an issue. The United States absolutely appreciates the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to confrontation. We absolutely do. We are worried, however, about the continual objections we are forced to raise of relevance because questions are being asked that your honor ruled on months ago. We think this should stop, judge. We think that all parties need to stay within the bounds of those orders and that we move this along. We're doing our best to do so, and we're just raising that. I don't know how to do anything beyond that, but we wanted the court to be aware of our concerns. And the judge says, I don't know how to deal with it either. It's a distressing situation we're in. I don't know how long your directive of this witness was, but I'm sure Cross exceeded it. Because Marcus had just been cross-examining this guy. And Marcus, number one, he stutters, so that can slow Mm -hmm. things down. But when you ask a question and every time you ask it, there's an objection and you have to wait for the judge to... Yeah, yeah. That really slows things down. And especially when most of your questions are... The objection is sustained, so you can't ask most of your questions. you got to find a new way to get there. Yeah. And so he says, I'm sure that cross-examination exceeded your testimony. And Mr. Burt says, by 40 minutes or so, judge. And the judge says, and it's wandering. It appears to be random. And I know you think you have a plan, Mr. Mumford, but I'm really, I'm honestly worried what the jury's thinking. And Marcus says, may I be heard briefly? The judge, sure. Marcus says, I don't know what else to do because I have a duty to get my client a defense. And if I do not give him a defense, that's an insufficiency of counsel issue. 
On direct examination, I'll just use it as an example. The government highlighted the very sentence that I was just asking the witness about, and they asked the witness about that sentence. The witness was allowed to answer it. I go to the same exact sentence in the same exact document. I ask the witness about it, and I get an objection. I understand from the sidebar, that's when everyone goes up to the judge and has a little secret. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, From the sidebar that the court is saying that all sides need to stay within the bounds. But, Your Honor, that seems to be putting the burden on the defense to keep the government in line. Because remember, the government's not, they're the ones that set the motion in limine. They're not supposed to talk about money lost. They're not supposed to talk about affiliate fraud. Right. Here's the judge's response to that. If you're not going to make objections, you let them inquire into areas. But if I have an objection, I'm going to make a rule on it. He said, make, so he tells Marcus, make an objection. I told you that at sidebar, Marcus. And what I'm saying is, why should I? Why should I need to keep them within the bounds? In other words, they're blowing through these doors that they say are closed, and then they're demanding that they stay closed to me. And the judge says, my instruction to you is make objections when you think they're out of bounds. That will save us a lot of time. Marcus, your honor, but I shouldn't be forced to appear to the jury as if I'm avoiding issues because they're not. Right. Is it? Yeah. If we object on that, it looks like we don't want the jury to hear this information when in fact we absolutely do. Right. Right. And I think between the judge and between the prosecution um, objecting on everything, pretty soon the jury's like, what in the hell? Like, let it go. But right. but they're not giving the defense a chance to even have their part in it, like you said. So that's not right. right. And then the judge says, well, then you're letting them get away with it. But if they object, I'm not going to let you get away with it. I want this trial to be tight. As I told you both at sidebar, we are at the end of day four, and I think we're still establishing that the iWorks entities were put on the match list, which is the predicate for the allegations the government has of strategy to create accounts that would not trigger the match list. But we're on day four of predicate, is how I view it. We've done a lot of explaining about the system, and that's all good, but we're moving at... So the jury is not present while we're arguing all this, so you know. Oh, okay, okay. We're moving at a glacial pace. Marcus says, very brief point, Your Honor. I think the government is misapplying it, which is one of the motions in limine. Okay. So Marcus is trying to get him to say, let's talk about this specifically. And the judge says, well, Mr. Mumford, I've actually got to recess for the day right now, and I'm sorry. And then he says, Mr. Riddle, you're on your feet too. Ryan Riddle, the pro se defendant. Okay. And Ryan says, Your Honor, I was just going to say, at what point is the door open for the defense when the prosecution is continuing to go through with the things that Your Honor has ruled on before the court? Their witness keeps testifying on things like identity theft and how that affects merchants. And I mean, we can't even address that at all. The judge, make your objections. If you don't create a channel, we're just going to go wide. But if that's an objection, I'll rule on it. But if you sit there, I'm not going to rule on it. I have nothing to rule on. Ryan, at what point does the door become open, Your Honor? The judge, if the government didn't object, the door would be open. If you don't object, the door's open for the government. And Ryan says, only to them, the court. You're right. You're not going to wave yourself into a position where I'm allowing irrelevant evidence. 
that's what you're trying to do. It's not going to work. Ryan, that's wow. not what I'm trying to do, Your Honor. We're in recess. That's it. And he just stopped it. And he just stopped it. Like, that's it. Like, are you kidding? That was just the beginning. And it gets worse. Like, the stuff I saw, like, the way he started handling Marcus, you won't believe it in our in our next episode. But let me just go into one more thing before we end for the day. Okay. Jeremy, like, he's new at this, right? Everyone's new at this. Like, Jeremy's yeah, new at it. Yeah. Ryan's new at it. We're, yeah. <laughs> and Cole Council's not helping. And Marcus, every time he takes a step forward, they knock him six steps back. Yes, exactly. And so... Jeremy, it's he's on cross-examination. It's one of his first... When Jeremy was going up against a man, and it was like a banker and someone that Jeremy felt like was his equal, he could come at them. He was actually right. very good. So was Ryan. Yeah. But I learned something about Jeremy. This is like at the beginning of the trial in the first few days. There was a woman that testified that Jeremy knew he was friends, pretty good friends with her boyfriend, Remember the Idaho boys. Her boyfriend was one of the Idaho boys. And she worked for their company. That company was called Mach 1. Yes. She is testifying. And her testimony really wasn't damaging to us. But on cross, I was like, okay, let's get him. You can really go after her, Jeremy. Not that she had anything bad. But, like, let's let's dig in. Let's Mm -hmm. pin her down on details that you were told to form all these corporations. Right. As we get a chance to do that, here's how the testimony went. I was absolutely stunned. So this is one of Jeremy's first, and his first cross-examination of a woman and a woman that he knew. And it goes like, Jeremy says, how are you? She says, good, how are you? And he said, in your dealing with iWorks, what what you've testified to today, because she was a government witness, so this is cross-exam. Okay. He said, is it your understanding that that was how Cardflex understood that they were going to, to be submitted and done as well? She says, yes. Well, the government, remember their strategy, object, object, object. So here yeah. comes the objection from Ms. Foytek. She's one of the four prosecutors. I didn't care for her. Okay. Ms. Foytek jumps up, objection, lack of personal knowledge. So Jeremy responds and says, I asked if it was her understanding. And the judge says, just a minute, overruled. So he allowed the question. Okay. And Jeremy says, she's already answered it, so I'll go to the next one. And the judge says, well, I don't think the answer hit the record. And they didn't hear it. So then they have her answer. And so she answers, yes, that that okay. was her understanding. Now I'm thinking, good, let's go for it. So then Marcus said, could you please repeat the question? I didn't hear it. And the answer. So the court reporter reads it back. Then Jeremy turns to the judge and he says, I'm afraid to ask another one. How that came out was so complicated so he then turns to the witnesses and he says i think i'll let you go thank you <gasps> and i was like what you're like no. what just happened no jeremy no oh and, no and even the judge says mr johnson do you want a minute to think about it and jeremy says well and the judge if you have questions you should ask them i'm not trying to make you ask them i'm just saying don't feel like you've got to sit down and jeremy I wanted to, you know, she's testified to all these things, so I wanted to make sure that the judge, ask a question if you want to. And then it's just silent in the courtroom for what felt like the longest time. And then Jeremy says, she's so pretty, judge. I better sit down. In the courtroom, everyone just busted up laughing. Like, like it was pretty. It was so charming. It was so It was just Aww. cute. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the witness says, thank you. And that's the end of it. And we took a recess right then. And I was like, wait a minute. 
What in what the heck? Like, what the hell just happened? So we take a recess, and Jeremy walks up to me. And Jeremy knew I was going to be frustrated with him. Sure. By doing that. And so Jeremy walked up to me. I was like, Jeremy, like, you didn't even get into it. You didn't ask her. And he had tears in his eyes. And oh, he said, no. she's my friend. Like, with the tears in his eyes, and I was like, okay, I get it. Done. Yeah. I get it. Wow. I just have to, like, lay the foundation. I know this is not one of the more exciting days, but... <laughs> <laughs> there, this there is the is, craziest this situation is like the perfect storm like uh-huh, uh-huh. you get two guys that have never practiced law didn't even go to college uh-huh. marcus who's like on his own and you have four prosecutors that have been preparing for five years for this and they're yeah. just chomping yeah. at the bit to tear sure. these guys to pieces and they got motions in limity so they can limit what we talk about, what we can question on. And Marcus is trying to figure out, like I say, they're opening the door to all of that. And then we don't get to go in that door. And Jeremy had said the same thing. Jeremy's like, Your Honor, I have the same concern that Mr. Mumford has. I want to be able to ask those things. But if I object to them asking, then it appears to the jury that I want to hide things from the jury and I right. don't want to hide things. I would really like to go in that door and as soon as we go there, it's objected. And yeah. the judge is like, hey, this is your problem. So I had learned about Ryan's attorney uh-huh. prior to that. It, it was my job as getting ready for a case. I was sending out all the subpoenas to okay. all of our witnesses and there were a lot of them. Okay. And Here's the crazy thing. So when you send out a, a subpoena to someone, and in this case, these witnesses were mostly not from Utah. They were from all over the country. Okay. So we've got to have U.S. Marshals serve those subpoenas all over the country. When someone gets a subpoena, there's a number. In this case, we have to fly the witness to Utah, put them up in a hotel, take care of that, have it all set. Okay. And so it was my job and I worked with Jen, one of Marcus's assistant. We were coordinating all of that. Okay. And on the subpoena, it has to say who they call when they get that subpoena so that we can coordinate their testimony. You okay. can coordinate a flight into Salt Lake, hotels, sure. so we can work with them. Well, here's the crazy thing. Jeremy is pro se. Ryan is pro se, meaning they're representing themselves. When you are a defendant in a case, you cannot have contact with a witness. They consider that witness tampering. If he's his own attorney and he can't talk to the witness... What the hell happens? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> exactly. So I'm prepared these subpoenas like, oh, wait a minute. How you do can't I do this? To. Yeah. Like, I can't put Jeremy's phone number on there to have, hey, call Jeremy to schedule this. Because yeah. he will get in trouble. They can't talk to Jeremy. And number four is standby counsel. So my guess is he should have got to put his phone number on there. So I thought, oh, I know, I'll wait till the end of court. So one day at the end of court, I walk up to number four and I say, hey, uh, and I thought we were kind of thought we were friends, right? And I said, hey, yeah, mm-hmm. I've got a question for you. I'm sending all these subpoenas out, having U.S. Marshals take them all over the country. But on the subpoena, I have to put a contact phone number. So Jeremy can't be taking any phone calls. Should I put your number on there? Wait, let me guess. And he said, no, put yours. No, he said, I don't know what to do. He had just packed up his laptop, throws his bag over his shoulder, and he says, I don't know, and walks off. Uh Uh-uh. Yes, walks off. I was so pissed. Because it felt like all this pressure is landing on me. This is a super big deal. Right, right. To have our witnesses, it is huge. Yeah. So then... 
I thought, okay, I'm on my own. I'm just going to put his phone number on there. And with Ryan's witnesses, we're putting Ryan's attorney's phone number on there. And so that's what we did. And subpoenas started going out all over the country. The next thing I hear, number four is complaining because he said, hey, these witnesses are calling my office and I'm busy. Well, what the hell? Yeah, Dude, you should be busy. You're so supposed you know. to be working here. Just so you know, he's getting paid and he wouldn't do it. So then while I'm sitting in court one day, Ryan's attorney sends me an email and he says, Pamela, I've been getting phone calls from witnesses in this case because you've put my number on there as the contact and I am standby counsel. I don't want to be talking to these people. I have other things to do. I was so mad. I immediately responded like we're in court emailing each other during trial. I emailed him back and I said, hey, if you are too busy to be standby counsel to take these calls to do this, please like stand up right now and tell the judge that you would like to be dismissed because that's pretty much the only job you have to do. Exactly. And if you can't do that, I don't know what else you could possibly do. Yeah. Why are you here? Basically. Mm -hmm. And he wrote back and said, you're right. I apologize. I actually think that Ryan's attorney was a very nice man. Mm-hmm. I think he was just truly... This this kind of case, this white... Co- I mean, it's taken me forever to explain this stuff. It is right. so complex. And right. he was terrified of it. And I don't blame him. I don't. I do blame him for bowing out three weeks before and not right. saying what happened. Right. So, yeah. wow. There is so much more coming. You will not believe what happens. This is... <laughs> absolute madness as we go through it but it's not boring this is one of the harder days (laughs) it'll get exciting again hang on to your hats folks we're still coming at you thanks for listening to family